accepted to Colorado and I was going to come to the University of Colorado. But they cut the size of the ROTC, the Navy ROTC unit, in half because there was too much dissent and people were burning down the ROTC buildings and the like. And I said, that's okay, I don't mind. So well, we're going to only accept engineering majors. And I said, well, I'm not going to major in engineering. Uh, they said, well, then you can't come here. So that was my brush with becoming a buffalo, and I didn't, uh, didn't get to make it. Uh, I'm really uh, glad to be here. I'm grateful to be back. I was here a few years ago. I don't know how many of you were in this room when I... Uh, spoke here, I don't even remember when it was, three, four years ago, something like that, probably four years ago. Um, and it was a, a, a great time for me then. It's a, it's a great time now, but a lot has changed uh, in that uh, interim period, which I'm going to tell you about. You know, when I was walking up here, I turned on this little uh, lapel mic. I, can everybody hear me okay? Is it all right? Uh, I always crack up when I put on one of these lapel mics. I was at a, a conference about two years ago with a bunch of attorneys in San Diego at the Rancho Bernardo Inn. And it was a panel of speakers, and we're all sitting there, about 300 people in this room. And the next speaker, and you know how those panel speakers are, it's like, everybody's just like asleep in the room. And uh, all of a sudden, we hear this, everybody's looking around like, what was that? And then all of a sudden, this woman comes back in the room, and it was a woman who had just spoken, and she had her lapel mic on. And she'd just gone to the bathroom and forgotten to turn off her lapel mic. So we all got, we all got to share in that experience. So everybody finally realized what had happened and gave her a standing ovation as she came back in the room for her, uh, her wonderful, uh, <laughs> wonderful use of the lapel mic. So I always turn these things on with trepidation because I'm afraid I'm, somebody's going to hear me, uh, you know, downstairs uh, uh, doing something I shouldn't be doing. Uh, but it's great to be back. Uh, I want to, I want to summarize, uh, first of all, what I said last time. Uh, I'm not going to repeat what I said, but I do want to summarize what I said. And then I want to tell you what has changed in my life since then, because I've had kind of a dramatic turn that I want to tell you about. My life is very different than it was the last time I was here. Um, but, uh, but the last time I was here, I mentioned I, I wanted to explain and talk to the people that were here then, and I want to help you guys today understand the same thing, and that is, how did I come to a point in my life where I could stand up in front of other people and admit that I was a Christian and that I had accepted Christ as my Savior and that it mattered to me? That's kind of a hard thing to do as a man in our society. It was hard four years ago. It was hard uh, 30 years ago when I was two. And it was hard, it was hard uh, for others that I've known since then. Uh, because our society really doesn't value that very much, and it seems to be getting worse, not better, and uh, what's becoming a much more secularized society. And especially if you sort of go in the circles that I'm sure you guys do, as I did, and that is kind of the man's manly circles where you play golf and uh, fly fighters and uh, yell and scream and uh, have a good time ripping around life. And those are kind of the circles I was in, flying fighters off carriers in the Mediterranean and... Uh, going ashore in Tunis and Israel and uh, Egypt and France and Italy, all over the world, flying supersonic every day. You know, the, the life of a fighter squadron is kind of different than the life of just uh, floating around being a Burger King manager in uh, Nebraska, as one of our pilots was before he went to uh, flight training. Uh, it's a different world. And as you know, that world holds you to certain standards. And uh, most of them are not very accommodating to men who admit to becoming Christian. So a lot of Christian men sort of go underground. You know, we sort of secretly know who's Christian and who's not, but don't let anybody else know. Well, I'm not sure that's really the way to do it. But uh, I do want to talk about how I got there. 
And uh, it's not, I don't want to spend all the time that I have today doing that, but I do want to summarize it for you. Uh, I, I grew up, as, uh, as I found out, uh, Mark Ramey did, much to my surprise, in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, in 19, in the, I was born there in the 50s and grew up there and went to high school there. My father was a professor at Purdue. And as I was saying, it was a turbulent time. It was a, those of you who remember the Vietnam era well remember that the whole country felt like it was coming apart at the seams. I mean, it was a very strange, tumultuous period. And I was kind of strange because I was basically a conservative person, but I agreed with the anti-war people in the sense that I thought if we were going to fight in Vietnam, we ought to get in and do it instead of messing around with it. Um, and so there was a lot of ten- a lot of tension. And I went to church with my father. My mother didn't go to church. Uh, she always had some reason not to. She had to fix lunch or something. You guys probably have seen some of that. Um, and I didn't really, you know, get into it all that much. I was baptized when I was 13, but I'm not sure I really bought what I was saying. When I look back today and, and people say, well, when did you fix the time when you first really had a relationship with God that was meaningful? You know, I probably have to say it was at the time when I was 13, but I'm not sure how sincere I was about it. It was just kind of the form that you go through. You know, when you're 13, you go through confirmation classes in this Baptist church I was growing up in. And you get baptized and you say the words. Do you mean them? I probably, but... I'm not that sure, because if I look at my life after that, it didn't seem to reflect that much of a dedication to a life living for God, that's for sure. So uh, then I went through high school, and I was very aggressive in challenging people in the church about some of the positions that I thought were unanswerable. Uh, And I carried that aggressive animosity into college. And I was uh, a freshman in college, and and I decided that uh, I'd sure show them. So all these guys were coming around from... Campus Crusade and the like with their little Four Spiritual Laws books and telling me how to lead my life. and So I'd kind of lie in wait for them, and I'd, uh, I'd kind of trap them with what I thought were really clever questions and make life really hard for them. Because they were freshmen and sophomores in college, too, you know, and they were out there because Campus Crusade told them to be out there. And so uh, I thought I'd have some sport with them. Uh, and, you know, you ask the hardest questions that there are to ask in the, in the world, and they're not easy to answer. Um, but but I was really just sort of throwing hurdles in front of people and in front of myself to make sure that I didn't really have to deal with the big issues, making it tough. Um, but during that semester, I also had kind of an experience where I stood back and I said, well, what is it you really do believe, Jim? Instead of just throwing hard questions at everybody all the time, what is it that's really in your personal heart? And uh, that's one of the questions that we tend not to ask ourselves very much, and it can be uncomfortable when we do. Well, I did, and uh, I decided during that first semester of my freshman year, I was going to find out what the truth was. Only only an 18- or 17-year-old could say, I'm just going to go ahead and figure out what the truth is, and then I'll go tell everybody else. Um, Well, that's the kind of arrogance you have, you know, when you're 17 or 18, at least I did. But, But it was a good time, because it enabled me to sit down and study thinkers and writers from all walks of life throughout history. So I said, you know, I believe that there is truth out there. I believe there is something other than just matter. Uh, the, the, the sort of two possible options in all of historical thought are either there is an eternal creator or there is eternal matter, which was never created. I find that really unlikely. So I kind of accepted the idea as a premise that there was an eternal being of some kind. What that eternal being was or that eternal spiritual thing was, I thought I'd figure out during that first semester. So like I told you the last time I was here, I went through 
pretty much a whole semester of in my spare time reading about Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Confucianism and uh, Islam and Christianity because I figured there was truth somewhere and I was going to try and sort it out. And uh, I found some of the hurdles falling down when I was reading, writing like C.S. Lewis, um, a book by a guy named Little, John Little, I think was his name, called Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe. They started answering some of the questions that I thought were impossible to answer. And when I got towards the end of that semester, I suddenly realized that I was starting to not have enough excuses for dealing directly with the question of, who was Jesus Christ himself? Did he, in fact, walk on earth? If he did, who was he? And there's really not much historical dispute. I mean, you don't find too many people anymore who say that the person that is known as Jesus Christ did not really exist. He's a myth. You don't run into too many people that believe that. They basically believe he was a nice guy or a good example or a good moral teacher. But I'm not sure that option is really available uh, based on the information that we have. And so I was suddenly faced with that in the fall of my freshman year, of dealing with the person of Christ, which is what I thought it kind of came down to. You have to decide, in my opinion, who that person was and what he represents. And as C.S. Lewis said, it's sort of a three-part option. Either he was a liar when he said he was a son of God, or he was a lunatic, you know, one of these people that walk around saying, I am God, and they're out of their minds, or he was the Lord. Those are kind of the three possibilities, and I sort of faced that fork in the road when I was a freshman. And when I went home for, uh, for Christmas, back to Indiana, my mother, much to my amazement, asked me if I wanted to go to a midnight mass. She was Episcopalian. She said, would you like to go to an Episcopal service at midnight uh, on Christmas Eve? And I said, it's kind of late. She said, right, it's at midnight. And I said... But I was so amazed that she wanted to go that I said, yeah, sure, okay, what the heck, I'll go with you. So we went. And I, you know, I, I went to the Episcopal Church now and then growing up. I was uh, not a member until much later in my life and then not now. But, um, but it's unusual in an Episcopal service to have a, a time of silent prayer. That does happen on occasion, but if it does, it's usually about 15 seconds. Because longer than that, the tension becomes a little bit too much. Um, well, they had like a time of silent prayer that went on for like seven or eight or ten minutes. I've never seen it before, and I've never seen it since. Uh, and prayer in the Episcopal Church, as many of you may know, similar to the Catholic Church, you're on your knees, on the kneeler. I think that's a good place to be for prayer uh, often. And so I was on my knees at that point for, you know, three, four, five minutes, one of those times where you're kind of looking around. Like, Are we done yet? Uh, but it was at that moment where I was suddenly struck with, that, that fork in the road experience where you say, you're either for me or you're against me. Which is it going to be? And it was just sort of washed over me. This, this fear isn't the right word. Sort of this understanding that this was the time where I had to make a decision. Not that I was precluded from ever making a similar decision at some later point, but this was the fork in the road in my life. And it was kind of a scary time, but I did choose to follow Christ, and I dedicated my life to Christ that night when I was 18 years old. And uh, from that point on, it's been a life of growth. Uh, people will tell you that, that have been Christians for a long time that it's not a one-time event. I mean, it is becoming a Christian, truly devoting your life to Christ, is a decision that you make at one point. But then you have the rest of your life to grow. What in, in Christian circles is called sanctification. And that's equally important. It's, it's one of the reasons we're here is to grow and to serve our Lord.
But then what happened? Well, as I said, I went off into the, the world of fighters and uh, flew off carriers, went to law school, which is another pretty hostile environment, uh, especially for Christianity. Uh, you don't talk about it very much, but there was a Christian legal uh, society group on the campus at the University of Virginia where we had great debates and uh, great uh, deep discussions about morals and ethics and probably was part of the, the foundation of some of the stuff I've written about in my novels, uh, the most recent of which, as he said, is called Secret Justice and is about a special forces guy torturing a terrorist in Sudan, essentially catching up with bin Laden, if you will, and finding out that... Uh, They've got everybody uh, except him, but they know he's nearby. And the question presented is, can you hurt this guy a little bit to find out where bin Laden is if you know you can get him by doing it? That's kind of the moral proposition that's presented in the book. And the Special Forces guy goes through it, gets in big trouble, and is put on trial in Washington, D.C. for violating the Geneva Conventions and ultimately uh, for manslaughter, a violation of the UCMJ. Uh, so it's kind of timely today with a lot of stuff that's going on with Abu Ghraib and some of these other prison issues. But but I think that going through law school sort of set the groundwork uh, for those, in those discussions for the moral issues that, uh, that were being presented uh, in that most recent uh, book. So during that time, of course, you have a lot of those discussions. And law school is kind of a freewheeling uh, uh, event. You get to talk to a lot of people about a lot of things. Uh, once you graduate from law school, though, pretty much... Those discussions are over. You can have discussions in offices with other attorneys and the like, but you don't really have opportunities to discuss important moral issues and help people understand why you believe what you do in life that often, do you? You just can't really get into it often. Sometimes it's because people feel so strongly about things that they get angry if you talk about anything of importance, um, especially from a spiritual perspective. And I think that's unfortunate. I think we've lost some of that civility in our society that... Uh, we sure could use a little bit more of, and that's get back to being able to discuss things of importance without making it personal. Uh, I think that's part of what humanity is. But as I was saying, uh, going through uh, then, I moved out to San Diego where my wife uh, grew up, and uh, uh, started working with a law firm there, and we had five children in eight years, uh, which was remarkable, still is. Uh, so I now, I now have four teenagers and a 21-year-old. Uh, that's how old the kids are now, and they're doing just great. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's very difficult, but it's wonderful. As you know, those of you that have or are about to raise uh, teenagers, it's quite a challenge. And I started writing novels, which I talked a lot about last time I was here, but I'm not going to talk about that much to, uh, this time. But I did write uh, six novels in six years, the, and as I said, the most recent one came out uh, just two months ago in paperback. But I want to get to what has changed, because I told you that something was different, and I want to explain to you what happened. Um, because as I said, this Christian life that I agreed to take the fork and go down uh, when I was 18 can often be a life of difficulty and trial. Sometimes not. It just depends. Uh, but the question is, uh, are you better off? And if not, what's the point? Let me talk about what happened in January, actually late December in 2001. I was on a family vacation with uh, all my kids, which is always an endeavor. Um, we decided to go skiing up in Northern California in Lake Tahoe area uh, to this place called Kirkwood. My wife's parents now live north of Sacramento, which is about an hour and a half south of this ski resort, which is about an hour from uh, southeast of Lake Tahoe. And we were skiing this one day. And uh, up to that point, I'd been feeling kind of fatigued for the past six months, just to have my usual energy. I'm usually sort of an early morning guy, get up at 5.30 or so, go running, you know, have a lot going on. I just wasn't really able to sustain my usual energy level. 
But that's okay. I was, I was, you know, basically getting along, doing okay. Went to uh, Tahoe to go skiing, and we're skiing for two or three days. And the third day, as we were coming back down the mountain, I started getting this earache uh, in my ear. That was, uh, I don't know if you've had an earache. I flew a lot, and those of you that have had pressure earaches where you come back down, you've got a cold, your sinuses are jammed up or something, your ear starts talking to you. Well, the farther down you go in altitude, the worse it gets because the pressure gets bigger on your eardrum to push itself through this hole that it's trying to get through. And if your eustachian tubes are uh, plugged up, you're going to have some trouble. Well, it felt like one of those. I was having one of these pressure earache things, which you can usually clear by blowing hard in your nose if your eustachian tubes, like I said, are clear. I couldn't clear this earache. And over the evening, it just got worse and worse and worse. And it felt, I don't know if you've ever had an earache like this. It feels like somebody has just taken an ice pick and just driven it right into your eardrum. It was almost incapacitating. It hurt so bad. And uh, I haven't had pain like that in I don't know how long. It's Maybe never. Maybe when I had appendicitis when I was a kid. I don't remember. But it was just, just unbelievable. So the next morning, I woke up and I said to my wife, I said, I am dying. i got to get some relief here. And uh, she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. i got to get some pain relief because I've been taking Advil. And just, you know, I may as well have been taking sugar cubes. It had no effect on anything. So she said, well, let's go to the emergency room. I said, okay. So we go to the emergency room. And they said, what's the deal? I said, I got an earache. And they give me uh, one of those narcotic painkillers. Dar- no. What's it, what would it be called? I don't remember. Anyway, um, so I took this stuff and uh, uh, didn't feel any better. It had no effect on the pain. And I said to Diana, we got to get home. I'm just not going to hack this. So I said, we got to drive home. So we all pile in our suburban and we drive south, which is about a nine-and-a-half-hour drive from uh, Sacramento to uh, San Diego. And, of course, California in the winter is kind of iffy as to whether you can get over the pass from the valley, over the uh, Tahone Pass, through the, d- the desert, and down into the Southern California area. It's pretty high, and it's always windy and cold and often full of snow. And sure enough, it was snowy, and we had a detour. And meanwhile, I'm taking more of this narcotic and just feeling horrible. And now I start getting sick. So here are all the kids in the back of the car, all five of them, and I'm throwing up in a wheat thins box, you know, in the front seat. This is really getting bad fast. And so we head south. We finally get down to San Diego. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys appreciate that image. Um, so we finally get down to San Diego, and I go to one of those little emergency clinics, and I said, I'm taking this pain reliever. It's not helping. I'm getting sick. And they gave me a shot of something to not make you sick. I forget what it's called. Gave me more pain reliever of a different kind. My ear is just killing me. And so the next morning, I call my doctor, who's an internist. And I go to him and I said, you know, you got to help me with this ear. I'm just out of control. He said, well, I'm glad you called. I said, oh, why? And he said, because I've got the results from your physical exam that I had just taken like three or four weeks before. And I said, okay, cool. Look, you got to help. And he said, no, no, don't worry about the ear. And I said, what do you mean don't worry about it? I mean, it's like I'm, I'm dying from my ear. And he said, no, 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 you got a big problem. And I said, what? He said, you have multiple myeloma. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's bone marrow cancer. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. I said, what do we do? He says, well, we've got to get you to an oncologist. And I, said, I was 48 years old. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no, I'm not kidding. I said, this is a bad thing. He said, yeah. I said, what does this mean? And what's, what happens? He said, I'd really rather you talk to an oncologist about all that. This guy was an internist. I said, uh... Okay, so of course, what do you do when you get something like that? You go right home to the computer, right? Go to Google, multiple myeloma. You type it in, it's a little discrete word. You come to Johns Hopkins uh, Medical, whatever. Um, 
came up on the page and it says, multiple myeloma, a cancer of the bone marrow, always fatal, life expectancy three years. This was not good news. And um, it's one of those devastating times in your life where you just stare at the computer and then you sit back and you look at your wife and you go, we're done. I remember uh, uh, that time, it was right after Christmas, right before Christmas I had been shopping for my kids and I had... Uh, I had noticed this this shirt that I thought I might want to get. When Christmas was over, I'd go back and maybe purchase this shirt. The first thought that occurred to me was, well, I sure won't be needing that shirt anymore. (laughs) And um, I was just floored. I mean, I was just floored. And so uh, I went back to the doctor the next day, and he said, I need to do another blood test on you. And I said, okay. So he did another blood test, and he came back, and he said, do you want to go to Palomar Hospital or to Pomerado? And I said, for what? He said, your kidneys have shut down. They have stopped functioning. I said, is that related? He said, I'm not sure. It could be from this mountain event. It could be because you're taking Advil, which is not good for your kidneys. It could be a lot. Of, it could be a combination. I don't know. What I'm telling you is your kidneys aren't working, and if we don't get something in there and start dialysis immediately, you're going to die of kidney failure. I said, that also is probably a bad thing. He said, that would be a bad thing. Um, so so he said, Pomerado, Palomar, wherever you're going to go. So we went to Pomerado Hospital, because more people come out of Pomerado than they do at Palomar, <laughs> at least in San Diego. I'm sure you all know where those hospitals are. You know, It's like the Roach Motel where you check in, but you don't check out. Um, so we went to Pomerado Hospital, and sure enough, I had complete kidney failure. I had water on my heart. I had water in my lungs. Uh, my, uh, they started digging into my chest, putting catheters all over me, these catheters for dialysis machine, catheters for chemotherapy, uh, you know, this oxygen thing up your nose, the whole bit. And I was lying there in the ICU. I cannot believe this is happening. Are you kidding me? And I was in the ICU for about 17 days, and they did the first bone marrow biopsy where they take this big, actually, I've never seen the needle, but I'm glad. Because the guy was, this doctor, this oncologist that I finally met with, um, they laid me down flat on this table, and he climbs up on top of me, and he gets on this point on my hip, which is sort of the back of your pelvis, where they uh, access bone marrow if they need to have uh, access to bone marrow. And he got up on top of me, and he has, I can just, in my mind, see this thing. I could only feel it. They can numb you down to the bone, but they can't numb inside the bone. For those of you that are looking forward to this procedure in the future... They can't numb inside your bones unless they put you completely asleep, and for some reason that doesn't work, and I don't know why. So he's up there, and he's leaning leaning on this needle, just trying to jam it into my pelvis, and he's sort of shaking, the whole bed shaking. I'm going, this is not good. <laughs> Finally, he punches through the bone and gets his needle, and then they suck the bone marrow out. It's just like sticking your finger in a light socket. I mean, it's just like being electrocuted. It's unbelievable. And so he then take this and they spread it on, on, on those little slides and they take them away. And he came back the next day. And he says, all right, we've now had a chance to look at the slides. This is multiple myeloma. And um, I got some bad news. <laughs> what? Well, we couldn't find any healthy bone marrow. All of your bone marrow is cancerous, 100%. I said, why haven't I just collapsed? Why haven't my bones just, like, stopped? He said, they were probably about to. He said, in my in myeloma patients, spines collapse, legs break, and you kind of fall apart. And then you start bleeding, and you're done. 
So what do we do now? He says, well, we've got to start you on chemotherapy, like this afternoon. I said, all right. So they gave me melphalan, which is a uh, chemotherapy uh, for used commonly for myeloma. And they forgot, I know they meant to, but they forgot to give me the anti-emetic, which is the thing that prevents you from getting sick. I, I know they meant to. Um, so that afternoon there I was, you know, throwing up from chemotherapy and uh, catheters. I was getting I was getting dialysis all morning and phoresis all afternoon. So I was hooked up to these machines that take your blood out and spin it and put it back in. Like my blood was sitting next to me most of the day. It was very strange. All day for every day, about seven hours of that, plus chemotherapy for about three weeks in the ICU. This is in January of 2002. And uh, so the doctor was telling me, I said, so if I go through the, all this chemotherapy and stuff and then do thalidomide and all these other things you're saying are possible, what happens? He said, well, you know, maybe we get three years, maybe four, maybe four. I said, and then what? He said, well, then pretty much it doesn't work anymore, and then you die. So that's it. He said, pretty much, yeah. Okay. So they let me out of the ICU, and I went home. I'd lost 18 pounds. Um, still had to be on kidney dialysis every other day. For those of you that know people on dialysis, you can pretty much do it every other day. They track a number on your medical uh, blood uh, results. But boy, you know, you sit back and you go, God, what is this about? Why are you doing this to me? Uh, you really do ask the why question. And it's not, people said, are you mad at God? People ask me that a lot. You know, well, you're a Christian. What do you think of him now? Um, are you mad at God? And, and my answer is no, I'm not mad at him. I'm sad. I'm not sad that I'm going to die, which is almost certain. But as I used to say flippantly to all my friends, the evidence continues to mount that we're all going to die. Um, <laughs> We are. It's just a matter of time. But, you know, we all think that we're going to turn 90 or 190 or whatever we've set in our head that's far enough away so that we don't have to worry about it. We all think, you know, someday I'm just going to get sick and then I'm going to keel over. But it'll be when I'm really old and I'll probably want to die anyway. Maybe. Maybe not. There are no guarantees in this life of how long you're going to live. And I was suddenly faced with that because, you know, 48 or whatever I was at the time, you kind of think, man, I'm going to live for another 50 years, and by then we'll have great medicine. I'll be 118, you know, playing racquetball will be great. Um, Suddenly I was faced with death being imminent, or as they say, staring it in the face. And as I now know, in looking back, uh, having been in the hospital to those who were with me, that apparently it was pretty close. That the, the time in the ICU, the doctors were talking to my wife and my best friends in the hallway and going, eh, we're not sure that this is going to end well now because there's so much myeloma throughout his system and the bone marrow and all this proteins out there floating around, shutting down all of his organs. His kidneys have shut down. We don't know if we're going to get them back. If we don't get those back, some of the solutions that we have you can't use. We're just not real optimistic about this. They didn't tell me that at the time, um, but I could tell that things weren't going real well. So what I, what I was saying is I wasn't, I wasn't, mad at God, and I still have never been mad at him, because, I mean, we live uh, at his pleasure, don't we? I mean, it's really up to him as to whether we survive another day or not. And we all think that we know how this ought to play out, but we don't. It's because we put ourselves in the driver's seat and say, this is how I want this all to play out, as opposed to how he has it uh, playing out. But I was sad. Um, You know, I had three teenage daughters, and uh, I said, man, I'm never going to see my grandkids. I'm never going to see them get married. I don't get to walk them down the aisle. I don't get to have that sort of full life that we all think 
uh, we want to have, and I certainly wanted and still want to have. So I was sad. I was really sad, and I'd you know I'd be playing music with my daughter, who's a real good pianist, and I would just break down because I would say I'm not going to be here doing this two years from now when she's 18. Um, so it was hard. It was a really hard time. But I found that I also had some uh, some real sustainment through that period, and still do. Let me tell you what's happened uh, since then, just so you know uh, what what's going on with me. I had about 11 months of chemotherapy. Uh, people ask me, you know, my, my Christian friends, even friends that I've known that I didn't know were Christian, uh, asked if they could pray for me. And I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, well, what would, the, what would your prayer be? And I said, I want to get my kidneys back so that I don't have to eat cardboard every day. If you've ever been on a renal diet, uh, if you if, hope you never have to. It's, it's probably the worst diet you can imagine. You can't eat anything that tastes. That's, that's the criteria. Uh, so if you can taste it, it's off the list. It's just horrendous. Um, so I wanted to get my kidneys back so I could start functioning as a normal human being. And then I really wanted to be healed. I mean, wouldn't we all in that situation want to be healed? And is it too arrogant to ask to be healed? I don't think so. And so those were my prayers. And over about the first four months, my kidneys continued to improve uh, pretty dramatically. And the, the kidney doctors that were working with me were quite surprised and impressed uh, at how well they recovered. For those of you who know these kinds of things, there's this number they follow, uh, which uh, is normal. It's about 0.5 to 1.5, and mine was like 18. And uh, you want to get it down to at least to a 3 or below before you can get off of dialysis. And so mine continued to steadily decrease. Um, and in about April, from January to April, it decreased. And in April, it hit three, and the doctor said, we're taking the catheter out, and we're going to take you off dialysis. Out it came, and it's been within normal limits ever since. And that's been two years now. So my kidneys are back to normal. I can eat tasting food. And uh, so that was a real answer to prayer, and I was very grateful. And so I was starting to think, maybe this is not over. Maybe we've got a little bit more of a battle here. And I was on chemotherapy. I did, I did 11 months of chemotherapy. I took a, a drug called thalidomide. Those of you who are old enough to remember the 50s remember thalidomide. It was kind of a nightmare drug. It was used for morning sickness. Uh, but it, gave, it caused women who got pregnant while taking it to give birth to horribly deformed babies, usually with no arms or no legs, and it was just terrible. So it was taken off the market fairly quickly. But they found that this, what this drug did, thalidomide, is it stopped fast-growing cells, and it particularly is effective against myeloma. And so they have a lot of myeloma patients take this drug called thalidomide, which I did. I took it for about six months. The, the bad news is it only works for about a year, maybe two if you're really lucky. And what it does is it eats up your nerves in the interim. Uh, so you lose feeling in your feet and your hands. You start going numb, and you get this uh, peripheral neuropathy, as it's called. And so the bottoms of my feet are numb today because of the uh, uh, thalidomide. But it, I only notice it when I'm barefoot. Other than that, <laughs> I don't notice it at all. I go running every day. It doesn't bother me a bit. But if you keep going, pretty soon you start having your, from like it's like you're wearing boots that from there on down is completely numb and your hands go numb and ultimately they have to take you off of it. So uh, you can only take it for a year or two and then you're kind of done. But I took it for six months with the idea that I had a decision to make. And the doctor told me, you know, I want you to decide whether to do a bone marrow transplant or not. There is some thought that a bone marrow transplant can be effective against multiple myeloma. And what I want to tell you about is the process of that decision. Uh, it was a very, very difficult decision because I went for a second opinion to Cedar sinai in uh, Los Angeles and a doctor who was one of the leading experts in the country on multiple myeloma. I talked to him about it, and I asked him what he thought about a transplant. And he said, let me just tell you one thing. Whatever you do, 
do not get a bone marrow transplant. I said, why? He said, it's too risky. The mortality rate is about 30%, 25% just from the procedure. Uh, even if it does, it's only good for a year or two. We don't have good evidence. We've only been doing it for a couple of years. We don't know how effective it's going to be long term. The risk is far outweighed by the, uh, the benefits far outweighed by the risk. Far outweighed by the risk. And I said, oh man. I go back to my other doctor at UCSD in San Diego and he says, whatever you do, your only hope is to get a bone marrow transplant. <laughs> he said, these other drugs and stuff that he says to take, you know, you've got basically a couple of drugs that'll get you a year or two. Maybe three after that, they got nothing. I said, yeah, but he said, you know, they're making a lot of developments. He said, there's, there's no development. There are a lot of things in trials, but there's nothing that looks like it's going to be the solution. We don't have that. Your only hope is to do a bone marrow transplant. <laughs> oh, man, now what do I do? Well, I did something that I haven't done very often. And as a Christian, I think it's something we ought to do more often. Uh, and you've got to realize... Um, that this is something that really tests you. You know, it really makes you wonder, what is it that this is all about? Why am I going through this? Why has God done this to me? Why has he done this to my children? Uh, but again, I, didn't, I wasn't resentful. I didn't get angry. I was just really wondering, why? What, what is, why not Dennis Rodman? You know, I mean, God wears tattoos and makes a maniac fool of himself. <laughs> why not him? Well, you can't really ask that question. That's not a fair question. Um, but I had, to, uh, I had to make a decision. And so I decided to have a day of prayer and fasting to make this decision. I thought, you know, I really believe that my life should be guided by what God wants for me. And I think it's really important for me to ask God what he wants me to do. I'm not afraid of dying. I don't, I'm not afraid. We're all going to die, like I said. Uh, I know that I'm going to be with him in eternity. I have that assurance. But I need to know what the decision is that he wants me to make here so that he can be glorified, not me, so that he can use me in some way, whatever way he sees fit for me. That's the idea. So I want to ask how to do that. And I needed to sort of clear everything out. So in San Diego, one of the benefits is that you can go sit on the beach, right? So I took that day off. And I, uh, several of my friends did the same thing, which, which amazed me. They took a day off of work, not with me, just on their own. And they went off and prayed and fasted, ate nothing except water. For 24 hours. And I went to the beach and I sat there on Del Mar. I don't know if you've been to San Diego County, but Del Mar is a really pretty place. I sat there on the beach at Del Mar, just asking God for guidance, reading the Bible, praying, wondering, you know, what do I do? You want me to die now? You want me to die later? Whatever. You just tell me what you want me to do. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I care. I, my choice, I want to be here. I want to help raise my kids. I want to see my grandkids. I want to go hiking in the Alps when I'm 50 and 70 and 80. That's what I want to do. And um, I had this little th curious thing. There were these uh, little birds called sanderlings that uh, were on the beach there in uh, San Diego. This is in uh, October of 2002. And they were, you know, these, they weren't those little guys that dash in and out with the water, the cute little uh, sandpipers and like. They were a little bigger than that, and they kind of stood around. Sometimes they'd let the water wash around their feet. And they'd come in, and they were picking these little, like, bugs and fleas and crabs out of the sand. And there were about 100 of them. And they were within 10 feet of me. And they were just standing there. And they just kept working and working and working on these little bugs and these little crabs. And they were just having a real go of it. And for whatever reason, it suddenly occurred to me that a bone marrow transplant is essentially putting in new immune system to your own system. Where you have these other little cells that go around and they take care of these myeloma cells. And they say, you're not invited. And they go and they get them. Much like the sanderlings were doing with these little 
fleas in the sand. And I said, that's a really interesting image. Now, did I just create that image in my own mind? Did God put it there? Is that his answer? I don't know. I didn't know. I still don't know. But it sure made me sure that what I needed to do was let that process go forward in my blood and let them, let the little sanderlings have a go at it. And so I decided to go ahead with the transplant. Now, it's, it only, you can only do it if you have a matching donor, and that's very tricky. Uh, you basically need a sibling. You can do it if it's not a sibling, but a sibling is the way to do it. And so it turned out that my sister was a perfect match. I have one sister, one sibling, and you have a one in five chance of having a match with a sibling. And she was my perfect match. And so I decided in October to go ahead and go forward with that transplant. So in December of 2002, I had a transplant with my own stem cells. And then in March of last year, 2003, I had a transplant with my sister's stem cells. And the, another curious thing about this bird uh, thing, which uh, really, really surprised me, because, again, you wonder if you're talking to yourself or if this is somebody else talking to you. I was in the hospital, in Thornton Hospital in La Jolla, and I was on the third floor, which is the transplant floor, and you can't bring plants onto this floor. If you bring a gift, you know, they, like, denuke it before anybody can see it. Very careful about germs, very careful about what's there. There's nothing that touches the outside of the building. There isn't a tree within 100 feet of the third floor. The morning that the transplant was to occur, I was awakened at 6.30 by birds. And there's really literally not a bird anywhere near. I'd been in that hospital for a total of probably 30 days, not at that moment, but over the year, on that side, on that floor, and I'd never even heard a bird. You listen, you can hear a lot of things when you're in the hospital because it's pretty boring. Pretty boring. Um, there had to have been 20 birds outside the window on the morning of that transplant. At least. I mean, I couldn't see them because blinds were closed, and I was suddenly awakened from my, my sleep. And I heard these birds. You know how they do when they're, like, feeding on something, and they're just chirping and going crazy? They were touching the glass on my room. They were, like, hitting it with their wings and their beaks. And there's nothing to stand on. There was no, it was completely flat. And uh, they were just, like, up against this window. I have no idea why. Uh, right before they wheeled in the stem cells for this transplant. Now, I took that as sort of an assurance that here they are, my birds are with me. The sanderlings don't fly. They don't go to third floors. They don't hang out at hospitals. Who knows what they were? I never saw them. Was that a sign? I don't know. Was it me talking to myself? I don't know. But it gave me this wonderful feeling that I was doing the right thing and that they were going to go in there and take care of me. So sure enough, the stem cells came, and they let me do it as an outpatient. I walked out of the hospital two hours later, and I haven't been back since. And... uh, we don't know yet what this all means. Uh, ever since then, I've been getting progressively stronger. I went back to work about 30 days later in April of uh, 2003. I've been working full-time ever since. I've tried cases in federal court, been to Europe. I run every day. I feel great. There is still measurable myeloma in my bloodstream and in my uh, bone marrow, but it's just sitting there doing nothing. And we know it's, They've never seen anything like this before. They don't know what to make of it. It could be that uh, I'm finished a month from now or two months from now or two years from now or... Two decades from now, I have no idea. But, you know, something occurred to me in, in going through this. Um, there was a story that, that Christ told his followers about a guy who was very successful. And he stored up a lot of grain, and he was just blessed with all this, this grain and production. And he said, he said, man, I've got so much grain. This is just great. What do I do with it? I know. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build way bigger barns, bigger silos to hold all my grain then I can relax, I can sit back, and I can eat, drink, and be merry, have a great life. And the Bible says in Luke, 
uh, chapter 20, that God said to this man, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. So he thought, like me, I'm going to live to be 90 or 190, and then I'm going to get sick and die. But that wasn't going to be the case. His life was required of him that night. And we cannot judge our condition, our state, our relationship to God by how much we've been blessed materially, whether we have barns and silos full of grain or whether they're completely empty. It's based on our personal relationship with him. And this walk has been a good one for me. Um, as I said, I'm not afraid of dying. If I die in, in a month or two, I might be sad because of what I've missed, but I'm not afraid to go be with God. That's okay. And ultimately, we all are going to have to go at some point, aren't we? And if I leave you with anything, it's this. Not that your life may be required of you tonight, but you don't know what your future holds, just like I didn't know what my future holds. And if you think you do know, you're probably wrong. I just want you to realize, if you haven't done so yet, that today could be the crossroads in your life that I faced when I was 18, where you have to decide, are you for him or are you against him? Maybe not today, maybe next week. But that crossroads is either here or will come in your life. Well, you will decide. And I want you to think about whether today is that day for you and have that opportunity for you to think about whether you want to take that fork and ask Christ to become your Lord, just like I did mine. And that's really all I have to say to you today. But what I'd like to do at this point is pray. And uh, for those of you that are interested in praying with me, let's bow our heads together, and then I'm going to ask the Lord for blessings on all of us. And also give uh, some of you an opportunity to make that decision that you uh, might want to make. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for who we are and what you've created us to be. And we know, Lord, that, uh, that we sin and that we have fallen short of what you would have us do. And Father, that weighs on us. Sometimes we don't know how to deal with it, and so we ignore it. Sometimes we turn away from you, even though we know that you're calling us and that you want us to turn back and become your children. And Father, I pray that you'll be with us right now, and especially with those who want to turn their hearts to you right now, Father. I pray that you will give us the opportunity to come into that personal relationship and knowledge of you, Father. And help them to pray, Father, as they ask you the following. Dear Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Help me to understand the man that you would have me become. I pray, Father, and accept your Son into my life to change me now. To take that fork in the road and to become your servant. To work out with you the rest of my life and the sanctification of my life that will help me lead a life for you and not for myself. Father, I pray that you will be with me now as I dedicate my life to you and help me to know you as I should. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Before you go, there's a... Uh, a...